Well, good evening, and welcome to our Good Friday service. I just wanted to give everyone a quick snapshot of what's going to happen this evening, because if you're unfamiliar with it, it might come as a little bit of a surprise. Um, so at the end of our service, uh, we will enter a time of communion, prayer, reflection, and silence. And so this uh, will be hard for many of us, right, because we like to talk. Uh, but at that point in the service, when I invite everyone to the table, uh, what we're asking is that everybody attempt to remain silent from the time in which I say, come forward for a time of uh, communion and introspection, uh, to the time when you get in your car, drive down the street, until you cross the threshold of your door when you, re when you return home. All right? That's what we ask. Uh, I remember the first time Ashley and I did this, uh, carried out this practice, um, we were silent all the way home until we crossed uh, the, the threshold of our door. And when we crossed it, I had this feeling. It was a kind of exhale, like, oh, goodness, I can speak again. Uh, but there was also this exhale of the kind of beauty and depth of the cross that we had just experienced. It helped us in some way enter into what, some, some mysterious way, the significance of what the cross is and was for us. So... Um, there will not be any lightning bolts if you say something to someone, and I promise you, my son will not observe this. So, uh, but just as a, as a helpful practice to attempt uh, to enter into the solemnity of the evening, uh, silence is a very good thing. All right? Okay. So I don't know who the very first Christian was. The Bible doesn't really say this, this guy or girl was the very first Christian. It was probably one of the apostles, maybe Peter, James, or John. But what I do know is that from the very second that the very first Christian verbally communicated, and this was probably Peter, what it was that they believed, the very first thing that that person said was Christ died upon the cross for our sins. Now, this person was probably quick to follow that up with the assurance that this very same Jesus was vindicated and glorified three days later when he was bodily resurrected from the dead. But the very first thing this person said, the very first words they uttered about Jesus was that Christ died upon the cross. There is simply no such thing as crossless Christianity. There simply is not. And it is my hope that tonight, as we enter into this time of medication, med not medication, <laughs> that was on Wednesday night. <laughs> Sorry, I'll tell you the story afterwards. Uh, <clears throat> as we enter this time of meditation, it's my hope that our hearts would be stirred, that our hearts would be stirred and that we would come to a fuller understanding, a, a deeper resonance with uh, the cross, and that through this understanding, through this experience of Jesus on the cross, through this connection that we have to him, we would come to understand his love better. But it, the truth, because the truth of the matter is, is that the cross, as gruesome as it might be, is the stamp, it's the final declaration, it is the definitive statement about God's love for all of the world. The cross. What a strange thing. What a strange thing. 
right? That we worship a God who voluntarily died on a Roman cross. And it is, it's just, it's such a common idea to us, isn't it? That we often move past it very quickly. We don't, we don't lend the significance to that statement that it actually needs. We serve a God who humbly took on flesh. Uh, John says it this way, that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. In some real and specific way, the one who was present and active at the foundation of the world chose to dwell with us, is what John says. And, in become, and, and if becoming human was not enough, as if uh, putting on flesh was not enough, as in enduring all the things that we know that the body endures was not enough, the same God in the person of Jesus used his own death upon the cross as a definitive revelation about himself. As if putting on flesh and dealing with all the junk that we deal with as human beings, he went to the cross as a means of communicating to us what he is all about. The story is simply so far-fetched it could not have been invented. Christians, followers of Christ, are people who make the statement that a man hanging on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago is the definitive and final announcement to the entire world of what God looks like, that it is the definitive statement of what our God looks like. This is not normal. On the kind of world stage of global religions, this is not a normal thing to believe. God looks like Jesus hanging on the cross. God's love is most vividly expressed to us on that very same cross. I think we struggle with this idea because it's so common and familiar, but when we step back from it uh, and really look at it, it also seems kind of absurd, doesn't it? There's an absurdity to it. There's a scandal involved in what the cross is. And it's not what we naturally want to think, I, I, I believe, about our God. You remember when you were kids, or when you were a kid? Yeah, you were all kids, just for the record. And you would play this game with your friends about whose dad could beat up everybody else's dad. Uh, every young boy, and I'm speaking for myself, uh, maybe girls don't play this game, uh, but boys definitely do. Every young boy believes that his father is the most powerful and capable father there is, right? We all believe this. Every young boy believes that his dad can, if needed, beat up every other dad on the block. And this was not true about your fathers. It is true about Elliot's, but it, was not, it is not true about yours. I got, I'm good at hayas. Yes. Uh, there are obvious reasons that we believed this, though, right? There, it's very obvious. If your dad is the strongest, that means that you're safe, right? That no one who is obviously bigger or stronger than you can hurt you because your dad can handle anything that might come at you, right? If you, all you have to do to get out of trouble is simply kind of run behind him and have him handle the trouble that you might be in. And in the same way, I think naturally, this is what we want out of God, right? We want God to display his power so that he can protect us, right? 
We want God to be the biggest and most powerful God on the block. Just look at Greek, Roman, and Egyptian mythology. This is what we have happening. It's gods being powerful and fighting and proving their power. A God's greatness is judged by how able that God is to use its power to overcome its enemies. Yet the Christian God goes in the very opposite direction, which is strange. Jesus puts on display God's power, but he does it through the cross. This God, the Christian God, displays his power not by overcoming his enemies with force, but by dying a sacrificial death upon the cross for those enemies. And Christians believe that this cross is the living example of what God, at God's core, is all about. And the thing that God is all about is self-sacrificial love. God is love, and the quality or the nature of that love is self-sacrifice. What, is it, what, what better display of power, of ultimate and complete power, is, there, is it to then choose to lay down that power, right? It is not power if someone can make you lay it down, right? Jesus says this, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly, It is not power to simply uh, run into people like a ram, like rams on the side of a mountain. True power, true power is the ability to lay one's power down and sacrifice in and for love for the other. Does that make sense? And so when Jesus lays down his life on the cross, when he does this, he displays the power of God in a way that we would have never expected but in a way that shows us the deep, beating heart of our God. So why does God choose to place himself upon this cross and die there, right? Why, why does he choose this mode for you and for me? In Colossians, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Or it'll be on the screen, though, as well. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, this is what uh, it says. When you were dead in your sins... In the circumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them. This is important. A public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The part of this passage that I want to focus in on tonight is that verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, which sounds like an oxymoron, right? On the cross. Jesus on the cross made a spectacle of the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by dying? Very often, the evil in this world, the evil that uh, occupies this world, is hidden. We don't always see it for what it actually is, right? We don't always call evil evil. I think we all like to believe that in some real and true sense we're moral beings and we can call a spade a spade, right? 
that we, can, we know what the difference between good and evil is. But there's something about the cross that points out that we don't do this as well as we think we do. On the cross, Jesus reveals our sin, right? And the sin of the world for what it is. But rather than simply pointing it out, he did it by allowing the full weight of that sin to fall on him so that we could see in vivid detail what it actually looks like, what our sin actually looks like. Jesus made a spectacle of the principalities and powers. He made a spectacle of the world's brokenness and sinfulness by allowing it to fall on him. In Dostoevsky's book, The Idiot, um, he depicts, it was, it's Dostoevsky's depiction of a perfect person or of a, of a nearly sinless person. Uh, the character is called Prince Mishkin, if you've ever read this book. I suggest you read every Dostoevsky book you can get your hands on. I really do. They're long and they're hard and there's some weird names, <laughs> but I suggest you read all of them because they're incredibly formative. Um, but he portrays Prince Mishkin in this book as a perfect person. And the reason he, the, the name, the idiot, is a, uh, he's being uh, sarcastic, right? He's calling this perfect person, Prince Mishkin, the idiot, right? And he, and he puts Prince Mishkin in all of these situations in upper crust Russian society where he comes into contact with people. And what they always think of him, what they always think of this nearly perfect person, this truly good person, that Dostoevsky portrays is that he's an idiot, that he's dumb, right? That he is in some sense flawed or broken, actually. I think that's in some very, and he's doing this because he's making the Prince Mishkin a type or a, an allusion to Christ. That what happens when the perfect man comes into the world? We rebel against him and we hang him on a cross, Right? The th perfection looks to the world like something that needs to be eradicated. And so, very, and so what Jesus is doing on the cross, what he's actually doing is he's making a spectacle of the world's sin. He's showing us our sin. He's showing the principalities and powers it, their sin. He's showing all the systems of oppression and violence and greed and Murder. He's showing all of these systems and principalities and powers and people and motives. He's showing them for what they are. He's revealing to us what these things are. And he, as God, steps into that for us and bears the weight of it so that we no longer have to. So that we can see our own sin for what it is. We need Jesus to be on that cross because we need to be shown the gravity of our sin. We need to see and understand the gravity of the situation that we are in. But notice here that sin has been disarmed. That Jesus, in doing this, in, in carrying out this act of taking on the sin of the world and revealing to us what, how sinful the world actually is, that in some real and true sense, and, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of this, we're, it's a mystery, right, in some sense to us, but in some real sense, we receive freedom 
from the violent sin and death of the world when we place our faith in a Jesus who died on the cross for us. Colossians 13 says it. It says that we are made alive in Christ because of the death that he died for us. Because of the death that he died for us on the cross, we are in some real and true sense made alive. And the truth of the matter is, is that the cross is often referred to throughout Christian history as the mystery of Christ. We can't get too explicit about how this actually works. For, the, for you engineers in the room, I know you want a better explanation, but, Dick, um, uh, but I can't. I can't. Because in some real and true sense, this is a mystery. It's a beautiful and symbolic mystery. But it's a true one. It's one that we as Christians are called to focus on, to think about, to, to center our lives around. In, there's this passage in Genesis 15 when God and Abraham are first kind of trying to figure out what this covenant thing that they're, going, they're making with one another is going to look like. And God shows up and he makes some promises to Abraham about giving him kids. And Abraham... Um, and what he says to Abraham is that I'm going to give you a son, right? This is before he makes some of the other promises to Abraham. This is like the very first encounter. There's a covenant that God makes with Abraham in uh, Genesis 15, and then there's another one in 17. But um, he's making this covenant with Abraham, and he does this really interesting thing. So uh, he tells Abraham, get some animals and sacrifice them, essentially. He says, cut them in half and lay them out, um, one half over here, one half over here. And in uh, Genesis 15, 17, it says this, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, I stopped it there, so you can look it up. But the important part is the covenant. The interesting thing about this is what what many scholars say God is communicating to Abraham here is that if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, if I don't do what I said I'm going to do, which is give you children and, you know, be your God and shelter you and protect you, if, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may it be to me like it was to these animals that you'd kind of sacrificed, right? That's why he comes down in the form of fire and passes between them. This is what most scholars say God is attempting to communicate to Abraham. It's, a, it's kind of a covenantal, sacri- not covenantal sacrificial ritual that God is carrying out here with Abraham. He's communicating to Abraham his covenant faithfulness to Abraham. Does this make sense in doing this? And to, and, but notice that Abraham really doesn't have, Abraham has his, has his side of the bargain that he has to keep up. Uh, really quick after this, God gives Abraham the um, circumcision right? So that's a thing that he had to do. Uh, so Abraham had some things, that says, some sides of the bargain that he had to keep up as well. But what's interesting about this idea of covenant, what's interesting about the character of God that's revealed in this covenant that he makes with Abraham, is that Abraham and Abraham's kids break with this covenant over and over again. They really never hold up their end of the bargain. Right? And God removes his hand from them and allows nations to kind of 
come in and take them. He allows, he allows his wrath to be um, exercised on them by al- opening them up to the natural consequences of their actions, right? But what's fascinating about this And what I think speaks to the heart of God on Good Friday is that in this passage, God said, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, if I don't do what I said I'm going to do, may it be to me like it was to these animals. May I be in some real and true sense sacrificed, right? May may this thing happen to me. Now, Abraham and his kids didn't keep up their end of the bargain. We don't keep up our end of the bargain. And you would think that the repercussions for not keeping up our end of the bargain would be in some real and true sense us being sacrificed, right? Us, us bearing the brunt of God's wrath. But the nature and heart of God is revealed to us on the cross. That God took Unto himself, made himself the sacrifice when he wasn't the one who dropped his end of the bargain. He stepped in for us in some real and true sense when he didn't have to. We're the ones who break covenant with God, right? We're the ones who sin. And yet, God is of such a character. His heart is so central and sacrificial is so loving towards us that he is and was willing to go to the cross for us. He was willing to do this, even though we are the ones who didn't keep up our end of the bargain, and yet he gives himself fully over to us on the cross. He takes our place. He bears the brunt of the agreement that we said we were going to hold up or that uh, that Abraham said he was going to hold up, right? He steps into the place of Abraham. You know, it's not surprising then that all of the biblical allusions that are spoken about when we talk about Jesus on the cross have to do with Jesus as a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, a Passover lamb even. That Jesus is in some real and true sense accomplishing something. That he is in some sense putting himself between us and the, consequ- and the natural consequences of our own sins. Because the nature, the heart of God is self-sacrificial love. Because even when we break our end of the bargain relationally, God is willing to both forgive and take the consequences of that broken bargain himself. This is what the cross is. We celebrate this together on Good Friday. We look deeply into the face of Jesus and at the cross. And we can know for certain that Jesus' sacrifice, his, his death on the cross, his atoning work, his, the, the work he does of uh, making a spectacle for us of our own sin, all of this work is full and complete, lacking in nothing. And you and I have only 
to identify with it. We have only to step forward and identify with it. You know, when Jesus was trying to explain to his disciples what um, he was about to do, he, particularly in the book of Luke, he says this over and over and over again. He says it in uh, chapter 9, verse 22. He says, you know, the Son of Man's going to have to die, and they don't hear it. And then he says it at the Passover, and they don't hear it. And finally, in verse, we'll talk about this on Sunday, but in chapter 24, he says it again. He says the exact same thing he said in chapter 9. Uh, he reiterates it, and he's like, I told you, and they don't, just don't hear it. But he's telling them again at the Passover about what he's going to do. And the Passover was a very intricate and is a very intricate um, kind of service slash meal. And it has to do with a lot of wine. It has to do with a lot of um, food. There's, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of cups. There's a lot of things. And he's trying to explain to his disciples what he's about to do. And he compares himself to the Passover lamb. Because, you know, during Passover, the Jewish people had to remember. Every year they had to remember. They had to remember what God had done. And rather, uh, and rather than say, talk about what had happened in the Exodus, Jesus says to them, my body is like this broken body, right, of this lamb, broken for you. My blood is like the blood poured out for you, just like this sacrificial lamb. But don't, don't remember the Exodus any longer. Remember what I'm about to do and proclaim my death, this thing that I'm about to do. Proclaim it until I come again. That's Paul's language a little later. But Jesus changes. He reorients the focus of what the Passover meal was meant to be about, which was about God passing over long ago in Egypt the people uh, who had this lamb and took its blood and put it over their doorposts. And he's now saying the thing that must be remembered is my sacrifice. The thing that must be remembered is the thing that I am about to do. And in remembering that, in participating in that through communion, by doing this, we, we partake in his suffering in some, some mystical way, to be honest with you. We remember what Christ did for us. We identify with his suffering and we become cruciform people. God's self-sacrificial love is, is revealed on the cross to be the very heart of who he is. As followers of this very God are called to identify with that sacrifice and with that form of love and to take it on ourselves to be God's ambassadors, his representatives out into the world, to act sacrificially for one another and for the, for the rest of humanity and to believe this and to let it sink down into the very core of our being, into our very marrow. just a moment, we're going to receive communion, as Jesus told us to. Because on Good Friday, there's no better thing to do than to remember Christ's broken body and blood poured out. I'd just like to say that we practice an open communion here at Grace Community. 
which means that you don't have to be a member of our church in order to receive with us. Uh, all we ask is that you follow Jesus with your life. Uh, as we walk up to receive communion in a moment, um, you may bring the elements with you back to your seat for a time of quiet reflection, or you can receive the elements right at the table uh, and put your little cup back in if you would like. Either way is fine. We want to create space for you tonight to reflect on the cross of Christ. So as I invite you to the table here in just a minute and into this time of quiet reflection, the band will play some music and we just want to create space, like I said, for us to come to the cross of our Lord. All right. So we are one people. We meet at this common table to reaffirm and remind ourselves again that we stand under Jesus, our crucified Lord, together. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you drink this bread, or eat this bread, and then drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We now invite you to the table and into a time of quiet reflection upon the, upon the cross of our Lord. <laughs>